I'm Michael Hainsworth. Cigarette smoking is the single largest cause of avoidable premature death in most of the developed world. The CDC reports regular use cuts 10 years off one's life. And the latest research shows that much of the damage done from smoking comes from the sparking up, something vaping does not do. In the 1960s, half of Canadians smoked. Today, it's closer to 15%. And for those who do smoke, two-thirds do so daily, with the rest describing themselves as social smokers. A lot has changed since the days of the British invasion, James Bond's Goldfinger, and the invention of the touch-tone telephone, the invention of compact, high-nicotine delivery systems running at low temperatures. Concordia University professor of economics Ian Irvine says these new smoking technologies need a syntax, but one that treats them as harm reduction technologies. We began our conversation by discussing the technical evolution of smoking. Okay, these are the three major uh, categories of alternative nicotine delivery devices. An e-cigarette is an electronic cigarette, and it is a means of consuming nicotine without combustion. So a cigarette, a traditional cigarette, involves burning tobacco. You inhale the smoke that results from the burning tobacco. And uh, in addition to inhaling nicotine and the smoke, you inhale a lot of toxins. So an e-cigarette is a way of avoiding most of the toxins. It, rather than burning tobacco, what we do is we get nicotine and tobacco, uh, nicotine and tobacco flavoring in a liquid, and we inhale that in the form of an aerosol as a result of running heat through it. So, the distinguishing feature for me of an e-cigarette versus a traditional cigarette is combustion, and that's the really that is a really critical difference from a health standpoint because the aerosol does not contain as much toxins. That's what the e-liquid does and the e-cigarette does. So that applies to the heat not burn stick that applies to the oral pod. They're all the basic system. The heat not burn stick is slightly different, but it's the same principle. The heat not burn stick is, as the name suggests, you don't smoke it, you don't burn it, you heat it. Mm. But rather than having a liquid, you have a plug that is formed of tobacco leaf and some other plant materials, and that contains nicotine as well. And then you put that plug, which is about half of the size of a traditional cigarette, you put that plug into uh, a heating device. Uh, it has a battery. You turn it on, you inhale through it. Heat goes through the tobacco plug, and then you get the nicotine sensation, which is what you're really looking for. It operates at slightly higher heat than the electronic cigarette, but the end result is pretty much the same. You get the nicotine without most of the toxins that you get as a result of smoking a combustible cigarette. We can talk about how they, those products are doing in the market during the course of our, our talk, if you want to. Um, in some in some countries, in some cities, these heat not burn products are doing very well. In other places, electronic cigarettes are doing well. If you put it on a graph, you really do see that around, what, 2017, 2018, a big drop-off in traditional cigarette consumption. Is this the rise of the vape pen? In Canada, the big decline in smoking began around late 2018, and 2019 saw major declines. And that, I believe, is attributable to the fact that e-cigarettes established themselves in a really serious way in the marketplace. In other countries, uh, Japan is a tremendously good example here, 
of the role of the role that heat not burn products played in Japan the combustible market has declined oh, by about 40 points 40 percent over the last five years but the interesting thing about the Japanese market is that about 30 of those 40 points have been replaced by heat not burn products so there has been very strong evidence of substitution between the two kinds of products in Japan. And the third product, of course, is the SNUS type product. SNUS is the name of, is a brand name, but it's a bit like Kleenex, it's used generically. And these products are little pouches that contain nicotine and plant material. They're tiny, tiny pouches and you, pouches, and you put them in your mouth and you over a period of 20 minutes, half an hour, you get some nicotine out of them. But again, there is no combustion in them. And it's another way of satisfying the urge to get nicotine. Wait a minute, this sounds like old-fashioned chewing tobacco. <laughs> they are a good deal safer than chewing tobacco, we're, we're, we're told, because um, the pouches that contain the ground-up tobacco leaf uh, in, mo in most cases, the a lot of the bacteria that could form a breeding ground for carcinogens and toxins has been fermented out of the tobacco that goes into the pouches. And so the tobacco is a safer tobacco than the tobacco that we traditionally just pick up and chew. I'm not a chemist, but that's what I'm told by my toxicology and uh, chemistry friends. But those pouches, again, if we look at different countries internationally, those pouches have played a very big role in supplying nicotine in Sweden and more recently in Norway. And Sweden has a long history of them and Sweden has uh, very low rates of lung cancer. And we think that that is primarily due to the fact that so few people are consuming nicotine through combustion. Those are the three categories that you that you mentioned, and that's a, a rough description of, of how they work. But these delivery systems haven't been around for very long. And I know that we were getting reports of underage vapors getting popcorn lung, they were calling it. And what a horrific image that creates from cheap knockoff products. Uh, how concerned are you about diverting smokers to this technology when it's so new? Some of the technology is new, uh, some of it less so. The SNUS type products that are used in Sweden have been around for several decades. And you really need that long if you want to empirically verify the impact that they're going to have on your lung cancer rates because you, know, you could be using tobacco for 20, 30, 40 years before the impacts show up. So we, we, we're pretty sure that um, the long-term use of the SNOS products has resulted in less lung cancer than would have been the case had people been using combustible cigarettes. So that has been around for quite a while. The e-cigarettes and the heat-not-burn products are much newer, particularly the heat-not-burn products. The e-cigarettes have been around for a couple of decades, but it's only in the last several years that they have become very sophisticated delivery products. A huge amount of research has gone into them. And there are not, as far as the heat not burn products, there are very few of those that are successful on the international market. So those are, those are newer technology, or at least 
the technology has evolved very rapidly over the last six, seven, eight years. Juul has played a, a key role in this. And the other big e-cigarette supplier in Canada, or the brand name is Views, used to, some, in some markets it's called uh, Vipe, but they are the two major e-cigarette types that are available in the convenience and gas stores. They don't sell so much in the vape shops. So um, if they haven't been around that long, how do we know that they're safer? Well, we can't be 100% sure because we have not been able to observe people using these for decades and decades and decades. So what you do in this case is you do a whole series of tests on them and you look at the toxins that are created in the ingestion or the inhalation process. And we have a lot of reports that say the toxins that are produced are a very small percentage of the toxins produced by combustible cigarettes. And so we think that if you really need nicotine, you're better off taking nicotine in the form of a lower risk product than a higher risk product, even though we don't observe the long-term health effects over 30 or 40 years. So these are not zero risk products. They're they're lower risk products, and, and certainly uh, most people who work in this area would not recommend young people to use them. They would not recommend anybody to use them who doesn't already have a form of dependence uh, upon nicotine. But if you have a dependence on nicotine and if you've been smoking a long time, then it would be very advisable for you to get off the stuff that's giving you uh, cancer, COPD, stroke, and so forth, and get onto these much lower risk products. So. I, I, look of, I look upon them as reduced risk products rather than zero risk products. And I think that's what most of the scientists do too. Let's talk about the tax implications then. Your recommendation of a syntax of 5 to 10%. Help me understand this. Is this 5 to 10% on top of the, the, the retail price as it were? Or is this 5 to 10% of the additional tax that we put on cigarettes? Okay, well, it's, this is a good point at which to be clear. When I wrote that commentary for the C.T. Howe Institute, what I was trying to say was that we should tax products in a way that reflects the relative risk of the products. And so if you are solely interested in the relative risk and you think of the amount of tax that goes on a combustible cigarette, and uh, Public Health England tells us that there are um, less than 5% of the toxins in a combustible cigarette to be found in an e-cigarette, and you were to be taxing purely on the basis of risk, then you might only want a tax that's five or 10% of the tax that goes in cigarettes. So I'm not advocating, I'm not advocating a tax rate of five or 10% on, on e-cigarettes. What I argued there was if you were solely interested in health, that would be an excise component. But of course, we have sales tax, so sales tax should go on uh, e-cigarettes as well. And it's also the case that, you know, we, we want to raise revenue, general revenue, from as broad a range of products as we can. We're going to be terribly in need of revenue down the road after the spending we're going through right now with the um, COVID pandemic. So uh, what rate are we going to ultimately come up with for e-cigarettes? Uh, that's a very difficult question to answer, numerically, that is to say. But in general, we should adopt the approach that there should be a very large, a very substantial difference in the taxes levied on combustible cigarettes uh, on the one hand and alternative nicotine uh, products on the other. Um, I don't know if that makes, if that makes it clear. Uh, you know, if the, if the tax on, for every, uh, you know, 100 units of tax on cigarettes, uh, how many units of tax should we have on and should we have 20, 30, 40 units of tax? Um, but 
certainly uh, much less than half, I would say. I suppose there's a tightrope walk that needs to take place between appropriate taxation, appropriate sin taxation, and the fear of just driving people to an illegal market where they'll get their product on the cheap. Well, that's the next dimension of all of this. Uh, we have a very rich history in Canada of illegal tobacco supply. Uh, in the in the 1990s, we were exporting cigarettes uh, without stamps on them, and then we were re-importing them. And by the time that that process has worked its way through, about 40% of the national market is being supplied with illegal cigarettes. And then even more recently, 2008, 2009, 2010, it's gradually pushed up taxes again. The, Ill the illegal market became uh, more and more important. And even today, I think people in government will recognize that if you look at the total cigarette market in Canada, you're looking at an illegal component of at least 20%. That's not terribly surprising. I suppose these illegal markets exist all over the world. And if you look at the cost of producing cigarettes, you know, people who are not supposed to be consuming cigarettes produced on uh, First Nations lands, you can buy a pack of cigarettes for a couple of dollars. Whereas if you go to the corner store and pay all the taxes you pay, 14 or $15 for a pack of cigarettes. So it's not that surprising. I think we can levy uh, reasonable tax rates on these alternative nicotine delivery devices and still keep a uh, big difference in the tax rate that goes there and the tax rate that goes on combustible cigarettes uh, without generating too much of uh, an illegal market. But if we start thinking about these alternative nicotine delivery devices in the same way as we think about cigarettes, and some provinces are already doing that, then there's no doubt that we're going to have a very big problem with, with illegal product. If we think of, well, this is a tobacco-derived product, so we should treat it from a tax standpoint in the same way that we treat combustible cigarettes and tax it accordingly, then it's uh, not much of an incentive for people who are heavily dependent upon smoking to transition over to a product that's much lower risk. So we really have to keep a very big difference in the tax on these two classes of products, not only because the difference in tax signals a different risk rate, but also because this stuff is easy to manufacture, it's easy to distribute, and we will generate a significant illegal market if we don't keep that gap large enough. And there's a very real risk that we that we won't keep that gap large enough because it's going to depend upon how the federal and provincial governments cooperate with, with one another in setting a rate. Taxation is a, a joint responsibility of the federal government or a joint jurisdiction of the federal government of the provinces. And they really do need to, to cooperate in choosing a rate that is appropriate. And it's also important that we not have some provinces with very high rates and some provinces with very low rates because that's going to encourage it to provincial uh, trading of, of these products. Uh, it's going to be a loss of tax revenue. It's a sort of gray market here. In 2020, the CDC reported more than two in five high school students and one in five middle school students vape regularly. I can imagine the figures are similar for Canada. Should a sin tax push this product out of reach of the kids? I think one of the good things about a syntax is that it'll make it a bit more expensive for kids to, to use the product. But will it lead them to stop smoking it or stop vaping it or what have no, you? What you don't want is for them to stop vaping and go back to cigarettes. That's the worst thing that could happen. But um, just that you have to be careful when you read the CDC statistics in the same way as you have to be careful in reading the results, the summary results of any survey. Generally, when surveys ask uh, teens about their use of 
sin goods, whether it be alcohol or cannabis or tobacco, they ask uh, at least two questions. One is, have you used this product in the last 30 days? A second is, have you used this product in the last year? And a third is, are you a high frequency user? And it's really important to distinguish between those three groups because you see very big differences. The number that the, the larger numbers that you threw at me there a moment ago uh, refer to the 30 day use. So a significant number of kids, maybe maybe a quarter of kids have used a vaping product in the last 30 days. But if you look at the number uh, of teens or the percentage of teens who use them on a high frequency basis, which means either every day or almost every day, the number is, you know, somewhere between five and 8%, I would say, depending upon the survey that you look at. So the daily use rates or the high frequency use rates are, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in that range. Some surveys will say 5%, surveys will say eight or 9%. And these numbers are fairly similar between Canada and, and the US. So. Yeah, too many too many kids are, are using these products unnecessarily. I mean, if it were the case that you could you could um, take all high school kids and put them into two groups, one group is the high risk takers, and the other group is the the low risk takers. And if you knew that the high risk takers were all going to become smokers someday, and you got at them and you said, okay, here's a vaping device, take your nicotine through this vaping device, but for goodness sake, don't smoke. That would be terrific. The problem is that it's very difficult to separate students and, and young people into these two groups. And so what happens is that some people, some students, some teens can develop a dependency on nicotine when they could have avoided it. So you really do want to make it difficult for underage people to use nicotine, all sorts of nicotine. Um, that said, it's better that they use nicotine through an alternative delivery system than through cigarettes. So it's really a double-edged sword. It's a, it's a very, very fine balance here. Teen use is a real concern. And the, 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 the difficulty in formulating policy here is that vaping is not good for most teens, but can be very good for a very large number of people in the population who are adults and who depend upon nicotine. And so if you're a believer in harm reduction, you say, well, let's try and use these devices to the extent that we can and get, get those really dependent smokers off their cigarettes and really, and really push a message to those smokers that, okay, you've been finding it difficult to uh, get off combustible products, but here's one way that you might get off. There are many different ways you can exit smoking, but, uh, using a system like this will help some people. And if we could really, uh, again, get messages out to the people who are heavily dependent upon combustible cigarettes and get them to switch over these pro to these products, then down the road, there would be very big long-term gains. When we think about taxing these products as a sin tax, but at a lower rate of traditional cigarettes, what is the risk of a producer, a maker of this product, from simply raising prices on lower taxed alternatives to match the taxes on traditional tobacco and therefore make themselves a little extra money and make the products seem identical or comparable? That's a very, very good question. What you have to partially rely on is market forces here. 
if you have a very large number of suppliers in the marketplace, uh, as you have, for example, in vape shops, you've got a lot of competing vape shops out there. Many vape shop owners own two, three, four vape shops, but there are a lot of different owners in a large city, um, in most large cities selling these products. So if the federal and provincial governments do successfully cooperate and set a moderate rate on these alternative products, your question is, well, maybe this profit, maybe that's really good for the supplier because they can jack their price up more. One of the good things about competitive markets is that when you're dealing with a large number of suppliers um, and I decide to jack up the prices of my products, well, word gets out pretty quickly that Michael Hainsworth is uh, supplying the same product at a lower price in his store and therefore people migrate over to your store. So if there's competition in the on the supply side, then it's unlikely that the suppliers are going to eat up or eat into that margin between combustible cigarettes on the one hand and um, alternative nicotine delivery devices on the other. You don't think that this would come from the producer side of the equation as, as opposed to the retailer side of the equation? Meaning that the companies that make the little jewel pods, jewel, or any other kind of heat ah, not okay. burn. Yeah. Now, now, I was speaking about vape shops there. And of course, vape shops are not all of the market. Yeah. There are three parts to the market. Vape shops, which tend to sell open tank systems. In other words, you buy a little bottle of e-juice and you fill up the tank and, and you vape away. And that is mostly what vape shops supply and are, sell. And that accounts for about half of the market. But another 20% of the market is accounted for online sales. These are rough numbers that come from surveys. And then about a third of the market is supplied by Juul and Views and one or two other small manufacturers. And they supply their product mostly through gas and convenience stores. So what I described a moment ago about, about competition, keeping, keeping a lid on the profiteer, the potential profiteering of suppliers, uh, I think that's a good argument when it comes to vape shops and online suppliers. They are all very, very competitive. And word gets around in this community very, very quickly through social media on different prices. It's very easy to search these sites and see what they're charging. So um, they're not going to be successfully, they're not going to be able to successfully gouge the consumer, if that's the right word to use. On the other hand, there are not very many suppliers of the jewel type of product. There are only a couple of them that have been very successful. And so they could possibly gain as a result of the government's levying a low rate of tax. They might decide to increase the product. But I think that um, I don't know in reality what the likelihood of that is because they're their product is already priced relatively high compared to the price of nicotine in a vape shop. Some people, vapors are, are vapors are heterogeneous, um, are heterogeneous groups. Some people just like the convenience of going into a corner store, buying a, a jewel or a set of refills for a jewel, taking the pot out, popping it in, and away they go to vape. Uh, because if you go to a vape shop, you buy it in a bottle and you open your tank up and you put it in and make sure your wick is working all right, make sure the atomizer is, is functioning. And so there's a little more work to vaping if you work through a vape shop. Uh, and it's cheaper to buy stuff in a vape shop, a lot cheaper to buy stuff in a vape shop. So you pay for the convenience of a jewel or, or a fuse. 
It's possible that they could decide to increase their prices. Their prices are already relatively high. Now, maybe it'll be the case that they will they will take a hit on their pricing because the government is coming in and it's going to levy taxes and they may have to say, oh, we're going to actually have to lower our retail prices because when the government comes in and puts its tax on top of us, we will be so much more expensive that we're in danger of losing people to the vape shop. So um, maybe they're already getting a little bit more profit than they might. Uh, hard to say. Do you get a sense that Ottawa has the political will to address this topic? Yes, I do. I'll just repeat what I said earlier on. It's really important that the provinces and the federal government cooperate. If you look at the tax take from cigarettes, it's roughly the case that the provinces get $2 in excise taxes for every $1 that the federal government gets. An excise, The excise levy on one cigarette or one tobacco stick, I think at the federal level is 12.5 cents, but several provinces have excise levies in the neighborhood of 30 cents. Some are down closer to 20, but basically it's two to one. So when we talk about, when we think about, well, the federal government has come out with a, t- with a proposal in the recent budget to levy a tax of $1 on every 10 milliliters of e-liquid, that's really just the tip of the iceberg because if it's the case that the provinces are going to get in on this, and they will certainly, some of them have started to, to tax these products additionally on their own. But if the federal-provincial split on these alternative delivery systems is going to be the same as the split on combustible cigarettes, then every dollar that the feds take in is going to be matched by $2 in revenue by the provincial governments. And that's the that's uh, one of the dangers here that there isn't sufficient cooperation between the federal and provincial governments that the federal government could decide to say, well, we're not going to levy too big a tax. And the the provincial governments can come in and say, oh, we don't agree with that philosophy. Thanks very much for leaving some tax base there. We're going to to get $3 or $4 for every $1 that you get in. And then that, that will push the price of these alternative systems closer to the price of cigarettes. So federal provincial, uh, Federal provincial cooperation is really, really important here. It's really important that we get a consistent view of um, how these lower risk products should be taxed. The other thing in the budget, and I, 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 I'm hoping we have time to, to say a word about it. The other thing about the budget proposal, and it, it is just a proposal, but um, government departments don't usually put out proposals unless they're thinking about them pretty seriously. The, there's an interesting quirk in the proposal for taxation that the federal government put in its budget there a couple of weeks ago. The proposed excise levy is $1 per 10 milliliters of e-liquid. So if you go into your vape shop and buy 30 milliliters in a little bottle, which is a typical amount that people, people buy, you can get 30 milliliter bottles, 60 milliliter bottles, 100 milliliter bottles. Um, and even 10 milliliter bottles somewhere. The um, unusual aspect of this tax is that this $1 at the federal level would be imposed on every 10 milliliters in a container or equally on any container containing less than 10 milliliters. The the charge would be still $1. So if you look at the Juul and Views products, they have these little pods which are containers, and the pod in a Views device 
contains about two milliliters. The pod in the dual device contains less than one milliliter. So the proposal is to levy the $1 tax on each of those pods, even though they contain one-fifth or less than one-tenth of the amount of e-liquid that comes in a 10 milliliter container. So the, the proposed tax is going to hit the big guys, Jewel and Fuse, much more severely than it will hit the vape shops. And I surmise that the reason for this is that Health Canada believes that the Jewel and Views devices are more responsible, are more attractive to kids. And what they're really trying to do is to price those products beyond the reach of kids. Health Canada is of the belief that the Jewel and Views products are, because of the fact that they contain much higher nicotine content, that kids are more attractive to them. And so that by making their deliberately taxing those products more heavily than a comparable product in a vape shop. So the Juul and Views devices, they have very high nicotine concentration rates. They are really designed to supply nicotine to people who are habituated smokers. You might be somebody who smokes almost a pack a day, and consequently your need for nicotine is quite strong. So when you buy a jewel or a Views device, the nicotine concentration is, is quite high there. And so the, the theory is that if you were to try switching over to those, one of those devices, it would give you about the same amount of nicotine as you would get from smoking a cigarette. And that would make it more attractive for you as a hardened smoker to move to a lower risk products. In contrast, if you go to a vape shop, you can buy nicotine concentrations that are really low, that are medium or comparable to what's in the dual devices. But if you buy the same nicotine concentration in a vape shop and you buy it in a 10 milliliter container, even though it has the same nicotine concentration, as in a jewel or views pod, you're paying one tenth of the, you would be paying one tenth of the proposed specific levy on, on the nicotine. So um, it's a, a very interesting proposal, and I, I believe it's a proposal that reflects the Health Canada philosophy. It's not a philosophy that I subscribe to, um, because the evidence that, the evidence that it is a high concentration that attracts teens, and if the concentration were a bit lower, the teens wouldn't be attracted, and particularly the latter part is something that I really doubt. I'm not sure that if you get the if you if you get the nicotine content down in a dual device or in a fuse device, that uh, teens would still not be attracted to it. And so uh, that's really part of the game here. I suppose this question should have been asked at the beginning of the conversation, not at the end. But for the purposes of disclosure, Ian, are you a smoker? I am not a smoker, and I am not a vapor. I don't consume nicotine in any way. I had the good fortune to inhale a whole cigarette when I was 11 years old, and I was sick in bed for two days after it. I don't know if it was carbon monoxide poisoning or what it was, and that was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me in my youth. Uh, the variation of dad catching you and making you smoke the whole pack. 
Exactly, except I, I did it autonomously. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for your time and insight. Wonderful to talk to you as always, Michael. Ian Irvine is a professor of economics at Concordia University. His commentary, The Taxation of Nicotine in Canada, A Harm Reduction Approach to the Profusion of New Products, is available at cdhow.org. Still to come from a physically distant institute, testing debt tolerance, the annual David Laidler Lecture with Jean Boivin, the Managing Director of BlackRock Investment Institute. That webinar is June 10th. On June 14th, the big reset for Newfoundland and Labrador with Dame Moya Green, the chair of the Premier's economic recovery team. And on the 24th, we ask, employee ownership trusts, a good model for Canadian prosperity? I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.